Uh, that being said, if you got your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 16, uh, but we're going to start in 1 John chapter 5. Acts chapter 16, continue our story, uh, but flip over first to 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 11. Uh, our study today starts with this question. Have you ever needed a specific piece for something to work? All right, have you ever needed a specific piece for something to work? Like you needed a very specific Allen wrench in order to put the desk together, right? You needed something very specific to happen uh, in order for you to be able to move forward. If you've ever had that experience before, sometimes what happens is without that specific piece, I mean, you are truly trapped in limbo and you cannot move forward until that thing happens. Uh, that happened to Autumn and I uh, several years back. Uh, any of you have you ever traveled with a dog before? Uh, there is something that you don't want to happen above all else when you travel with the dog. Can anybody tell me what that is? You do not want to, if you have a hyperactive dog, you do not want to shut the doors and have the dog hop on the lock button of the car, all right? That can be one of the worst things that can happen to you. Again, there's all sorts of stuff that can happen with bathroom issues, but if you are locked out of that car, you ain't going nowhere. And so uh, back in the day, Autumn and I were driving uh, between the Dallas area and uh, Lubbock, Texas, and uh, we usually would skip out Interstate 20. You drive on I-20, there's a whole bunch of, of uh, semi-trucks that drive I-20 typically, and so we drove the back way on Highway 82, which leads you right an hour out before Lubbock to a little town called Dickens that I can guarantee you most of you have never heard of before, okay? Uh, in Dickens, Texas, just outside of the city, town, village, hut, I mean, I don't know what it is, whatever it is, just a very, very small place, all right? Outside of Dickens, there is a rodeo arena and a big city truck stop uh, without, uh, that's just kind of a bathroom stop, rest stop, uh, just outside of the city, and uh, uh, at that spot, it's a really easy place to stop on your journey where you don't just get uh, trapped on your way back into Lubbock, and so we stopped there because Jack, who at the time was one years old, uh, one year old, Jack had a, a really stinky diaper, and uh, we wanted to stop and give the dog a chance to walk around. And so Autumn and I were usually very cognizant. Somebody was in the car or a door was open at all times. But this particular day, Autumn had just finished changing Jack's diaper and was going to throw the diaper away. I had just let the dog after walking him back into the car. And all of a sudden we hear clunk and the doors shut at the same time. And you can see it on both of our faces. Sheer terror. Like, oh no, we have to open the door before something happened. And Blake because he was a crazy dog, all of a sudden, in that split second, jumps on the lock button, and bam, all of a sudden, our two kids, our three-year-old Lulu, our one-year-old uh, our one-year-old uh, Jack, and then our dog are all locked in the car. Now, praise God, the car was on. That was the good news. It was a hot Texas day. AC is blowing in that car. But I'm telling you, we were sitting there like, what are we going to do? I said, Autumn, get your cell phone. And she looks, and she goes, they're both on the console. So all of a sudden, we are three miles outside of nowhere, all right? Three miles outside of Dickens, Texas. Even if I walk to go get help or run to go get help, it's going to take such a long time, the car's probably going to run out of gas in that time uh, that it's sitting there on the side. I mean, we're sitting there just really panicked. And all of a sudden, I think like of movies where the guys take off their shirts and punch through the window. You know, I mean, I've never done that before, but it just seemed like movies wouldn't lie to me in a moment like that. And so I'm thinking to myself, should I break the window? Should I walk the three miles? And then, 
then autumn is like, maybe we can get Blaze to do it again. And so we're running around the car trying to coax the dog into jumping on the lock button again. And he's sitting in the seat as calm as I've ever seen him, right? Just going, what are you guys doing? Let's hit the road, right? And then finally, we look over. Nobody's stopping at the rest stop either, so we can't even ask them for help. And so we're sitting there, and finally, Autumn goes, maybe we try Lulu, okay? Have you ever tried to reason with a three-year-old, all right? She's in the car. She's buckled into her car seat, and we look over at Lulu, and I'm like, Lulu... I need you to unbuckle your car seat. Now, just so you know, that's like the biggest no-no for a three-year-old ever, right, is to unbuckle the car seat. And Lulu's our oldest and our pleaser, so she had never done that before. So she's sitting there in the car seat. She doesn't want to move. And finally, they go, Lulu, unbuckle your car seat. Well, she starts to cry sitting there in that seat. She unbuckles the harness. She unbuckles the bottom. And she's just crying. And she puts her fingers up against the windows. And I'm like, I know, sweetheart, I know. Can you just... Push the little button. Push the button. She finally gets over there, and she pushes the button. We open the door immediately. At that point, we don't care if the dog runs away. I mean, we were just done at that point. I mean, we were just done. We finally get in the car. We get it set, and then we are on our way again. All that story is to share this point with you. We couldn't go anywhere until we dealt with that issue. That was a huge problem, and we could not move forward in our journey. It didn't matter what appointments we had. It didn't matter how nice our car was. It didn't matter how much we loved our kids. We had to make a decision. We had to deal with this issue before we could ever move forward. It was a big, big problem. First John chapter 5, the Apostle John lets us know that we have a problem that must be dealt with. Look at what he says. First John chapter 5, and start in verse 11. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. He's talking about eternity here. He says, and this life is in the Son. You can't get more simple than this. Verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. When you read the words of the Apostle Paul, deeply educated man, again, deeply spiritual, his theology is unparalleled. John is an assistant fisherman. When you read the words of John, the spiritual truth is just as powerful, but he boils it down in such an understandable way that he's the, his gospel is the everyman's gospel. He understands exactly how to put it. And he says, we have a problem. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. But if you don't have the Son, you do not have eternal life. If you're taking notes, write this down. Six words that sum up this whole lesson today. Are you ready? All of eternity hinges on Jesus. Let me say that again. All of eternity hinges on Jesus. It doesn't matter what plans you've got. It doesn't matter, again, uh, what family you've got. It doesn't matter what church you grew up in. Your eternity hinges on do you have the Son or do you not. We call this, big churchy word, you ready? We call this being saved. Saved is a word uh, that has a bunch of different connotations in our culture, but in the church culture, it means this. You ready? A little definition. Saved means eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from God in hell. Let me say that one more time. Saved means eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from God in hell. Jesus himself even says at the end of time, it's sheep and it's goats. It's one or the other. There's no sheep goats out there, all right? There's 
there's no goat sheep. He says, at the end of time, either you are a child of your father in heaven or you are a child of your father, the devil. Eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from God in hell is what it means to be saved. Or is what the, it means to be saved. It begs the big trillion dollar question of all time. So how does one become saved? And that's the question that we're going to address today uh, that we also find is addressed in our next passage, Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 34. Now flip over back to Acts 16, and we're going to continue on in our story of Paul and Silas uh, as they are sharing the gospel in Philippi. And in this passage, it's going to address the most important question again in all of Christendom. How does someone become saved? How do they spend eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from God in hell? Look at Acts 16, and now let's read verse 22. The lead into this passage is Paul and Silas have been wrongfully imprisoned uh, because of their faith. Uh, they, uh, the entire city has been stirred up against them uh, because of something that happened at a Riverside Bible study. And the byproduct starts in verse 22. It says, so the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks under he fastened their feet in the stocks you got to stop here for just a minute they've been stripped humiliated they've been not just beaten but they've been severely beaten at this point i mean again they are truly in rough shape and they are incredibly uncomfortable put in the inner cell uh, where the uh, violent criminals are put and it says that they're in the stocks most likely it's not just their feet but it's both their arms and their head that are in the stocks they are fully immobilized in the inner cell they've been beaten they're hurting they're embarrassed and also uh, are they uh, they're uh, they've been humiliated and they also again are in a place where they're very uncomfortable it's at that point we studied last week paul and silas decide to do a worship service look at verse 25 about midnight paul and silas were praying and singing hymns to god and the other prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now stop right there for just a minute. We talked about this at length last week, but it's important to remember. When Paul and Silas begin to sing at midnight, they're in the inner cell, and everyone in the prison, including the jailer, can hear what's going on. When the earthquake happens, it would have been impossible for anyone in that prison to not realize that the singing that was done by those two men, that this movement of God was something that affected all of them. And it says, all their chains come off, all the doors fly open. And at that point, the jailer, knowing Roman law, realizes if the prison doors are open, if the chains have come loose, I'm in a culture where it's an eye for an eye, a life for a life. That means that if one prisoner escapes that they're going to take the jailer's life. Not only that, most likely, if three or four prisoners escape, they're going to take it out on his family. They'll kill him, they'll kill his wife, they'll kill his firstborn and down the line. I mean, this is a moment where he's sitting there going, whoa, maybe if I die, they'll at least have mercy on my family when these prisoners run away. So he draws his sword and is about to kill himself. And the Apostle Paul, whether he hears the sword come out of the sheath or whether Paul just knows Roman law because he was a brilliant legal leader, he 
comes to the point where he stops and says, hey, hey, we're all here and nobody's going nowhere. Don't miss this. Paul doesn't just speak for himself. He doesn't just speak for Silas. In that moment, in a movement of God, he speaks for every prisoner by going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody's going anywhere. We're all staying right here. For him to do that in that moment speaks to the power of God even before we even get into the miracle. At that point, the jailer knows something special has happened. Look at verse 29. It says, The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and he fell before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Circle, highlight, and underline that question. Maybe the most important question in all of eternity. What do we have to do to inherit eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from God in hell. Now stop there for just a minute because we're about to get the answer to that question, but you really need to stop and dwell just for a minute on the mindset of the jailer. If you're taking notes, our big question, how does one become saved? Number one, you must realize that without help, you're in big trouble. Let me say that again. You must realize that without help, you're in big trouble. In the case here with the jailer, he is fully cognizant that he could be put to death if even one of those criminals, even one of those who are being held under his care, escape. And it causes him, even after Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all here, it causes the jailer to rush in and say, I realize that I am incomplete on my own. And with deep desperation in realizing that I'm incomplete, that I'm sinful, I cry out to you, give me my checklist, tell me what I need to do so that I can be saved. Now, just for the record, it's our response when we realize that we are not good enough on our own. If you're taking notes, write this down. Sin has a price and you can't afford to pay it. Let me say it again. Sin has a price and you can't afford to pay it. The start of any person's salvation journey has to be the moment where you realize Jesus didn't just die for sin, capital S, sin of the world. He died for your sin specifically. You need a savior. Not just the world, but you specifically. Your sin must be atoned for or it counts against you on that day of judgment. You've got to realize that without help, you are in big trouble. It's one of the reasons why for some of you, you've got friends and relatives that you want to know God so desperately. You want them to know Jesus the same way that you do. The prayer to pray is that God would open their eyes, first of all, to the fact that they're a sinner. That they've done things wrong that need to be atoned for and that one day they will have to stand in judgment for those things. It's not to scare them. Every human being realizes we come short and that one day the bill comes due. You have to come to realization that you don't want to have that resting on your shoulders because you can't pay it. It's the reason David, in Psalm chapter 40, when he shares his testimony, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit. That word slimy pit, it's one of the only places it's used in Scripture. One translation says the miry bog. You know what it means? It means that it's like a well that's not having a, that doesn't have rocks or, uh, or stones that line the inside. The slimy pit means you are in 
this pit of mud, and as you try to climb out of it on your own, you just slip further and further down into the muck. You try to get out, but you can't get out of it on your own. That's the realization that we are in big trouble if an outside force doesn't come and lift us out of that pit. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. He heard my cry. He lifts me up out of the pit, puts my feet on a rock, and gives me a firm place to stand and a new song in my mouth. The first step towards salvation is realizing you cannot do anything on your own. I heard a preacher say it this way one time, and it's always stuck with me. The difference between Christianity and all of the world religions is the difference between two words, the word do and the word done. In all of the world religions, there are these scales of justice in one way or another, and all your good deeds are put on one side, all your bad deeds are put on the other, and whichever way the scale tips determines your eternity or determines how you're reincarnated or determines what level of heaven you get into. But here's the problem with the scales of justice. God is holy. God is perfect. God is pure. God can't just have part with people who are mostly unsinful. God can have no part with any sin of any kind. That means even the teeniest, tiniest, most minuscule sins skips the, tips the scale in the wrong direction. The difference between Christianity and all the world religions is the difference between believing that your works can get you to God rather than what Christ has done is what gets us to God. He has done the work. He is the atoning sacrifice. And he's the one way that we have hope of salvation. You got to realize that without help, you're in trouble. You can't pay the bill. Our daughter Harper, true preacher's kid, okay? I mean, every now and again, you get a true preacher's kid in the mix. And she is our true preacher's kid. She is the one who I think understands theology the best. Uh, and, she's, and she's seven, so that's saying something, you know? But Harper is so sweet. We love her so much. Harper is the one that could spout off all the theology. She's the one that could tell you Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he's the son of God. And then one day, again, we thought it might be her day of salvation. Autumn looked at her and she goes, Harper, she goes, do you believe you're a sinner? And she goes, nope. <laughs> True preacher's kid. We go, well, is your brother Jack a sinner? Uh-huh. Is Lulu a sinner, your sister? Uh-huh. She goes, or then Autumn goes, is your daddy a sinner? And she looked and she goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we said, what about you? Are you a sinner? Mm -mm. No way. Can I tell you what that showed us that day? That she wasn't ready to be saved. That the Spirit had not revealed to her that there was a need. Now listen to me. A day comes when she made a big mistake. It happens for all of us. She makes a big mistake. And it's not that we made a big deal about it, but we just sat with her and said, you realize that was a sin, right? And she wept and wept. She goes, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we're like, yes, you are. We all are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen to me. That's the first step in salvation. In understanding that not just the world, but you are sunk without Jesus. Without him, you're in trouble. Sin has a price, and you can't afford to pay it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, the cost of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It begs the question, are you aware of your sin problem? Are you aware of your sin problem?
not just the world, not just society, but are you aware of your personal sin problem? Now look at the answer here. Are you ready? Flip back over to Acts 16, and let's look at verse 31. I truly believe this may be one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture, and it's one that I go back to often. Again, the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he asked them, brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do? Give me my checklist so that I can spend eternity with God in heaven instead of eternity separated from God in hell. So much good theology in this next verse. Are you ready? They replied. Circle, highlight, and underline, they replied. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Underline that word Lord that's in that passage. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Not just you, but you and your whole household. Underline and highlight you and your whole household. Stop right here for just a minute. Keys to eternity right here in this verse. Give me my list. What do I have to do? Tell me my checklist for how I can spend eternity with God in heaven. They come back and it says specifically, they replied. That is so important because this is not Paul's theology. Paul's take, they are applying on behalf of all Christendom. The apostles and everyone who walked with Jesus from the mouth of Jesus himself. They replied together, the answer, not just Paul's answer, not just Silas's answer, but the answer is, believe in Jesus, not just that he existed, but that he is Lord, that he's the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he alone is the perfect sacrifice for all your sin. You do that. You follow him. He is the one and only stargate to eternity with God who created the universe. You believe in him, and you shall be saved. But listen, but not just you. You and your whole household. He's not saying there that family name saves you or going to the right church saves you. He's saying that Christ died for you and for you and for you and for you. He died for each one of us individually. It wasn't just a big collective. It was a big micro deal as well. Each one of us. Believe in the Lord Jesus, that he is who he claimed to be, and you will be saved, you, and it's also for everyone else as well. So how does one become saved? Number one, you must realize that without help, you're in trouble. And number two, you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. You must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. To believe in Jesus means that you claim Jesus is Lord and that you have faith that he's the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. I'll never forget one of my favorite stories in youth ministry. We had a young man in our church, kind of a famous atheist, if you can be a famous atheist in Lubbock, Texas. He was a young man whose parents went to church every Sunday, and while I was working as a student minister, his parents said, we're going to make you go to church on Sunday mornings, but anything else is optional. You can choose whether or not you want to attend with us or not. And so I'll never forget, um, we had a meeting because uh, when he uh, kind of was acting out in the beginning, he didn't want to go to church on Sunday mornings, and so he just kind of looked up a whole bunch of questions that would cause the teacher and uh, the class trouble, and he would just pepper the teacher with those questions and try to pick apart their theology. Um, it wasn't anything surgical or strategic. He just was, again, he was just acting out so he wouldn't have to go to church anymore. And I'll never forget, there was a group of parents that called a meeting and they said, we want you to throw this kid out of church. We don't want him coming anymore. And I remember I looked at him as a youth minister and I said, we can put together a better process for this, but we're not throwing a kid out of church for asking questions. I said, that's not the way that this works. And so uh, we had a Sunday school teacher at that point who raised his hand and he goes, hey, how about if I meet with them once a week 
And he said, I'll offer to answer the questions privately. And he said, maybe we can head some of these questions off at the pass. He goes, honestly, he goes, I'd like to know the answers so that I could give the answers to the group on these questions as well. And so they start to meet. Turns out it was like three or four questions that uh, he was just kind of repeating over and over again. Um, But they started to work through those, gave our students uh, some insight into how to answer those questions. And then, again, it developed this really cool relationship between this teacher and the student. All that to say... All of a sudden, he starts coming to the Wednesday night worship service. He didn't have to do that. He was choosing to. His senior year in high school, he's choosing to come around for those services. He would always be the last one to show up and the very first one to leave. Just get in and out just as quick as possible. And I'll never forget, he signed up for youth camp. We went to Falls Creek that year. He signs up for youth camp. And I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. Maybe he's getting saved. Maybe the Spirit's stirring in his heart. Because he, again, his rule with his parents was he didn't have to uh, come to the camps. He could just sign up. He had to sign up for those on his own. Well, the end of the story, he comes to camp and all the kids, because they know his story, are watching him to see what happens. A guy named Ed Newton was preaching that week. And Ed Newton gets up, shares the gospel, and says, maybe there's somebody that you need to reach out to in your group and have another discussion with them. Well, I think of this young man, and I went up to him that afternoon, and I said, hey, if you've got any questions, I'd love to be able to answer those spiritual questions for you. I said, I know we've talked through quite a bit over the years, but if there's something specifically you're thinking about, I said, Let's, I said there's a fried pie shop that's about a 15-minute drive from here, the Sinclair's. I said, we'll make the drive 15 minutes up to the fried pie shop. We'll get a pie. We'll drive the 15 minutes back. I said, that'll give you 30 minutes to ask whatever questions you want. We load up in the church van, this big 15-passenger van. I turn the ignition on, and the moment the ignition goes on, right out the gate, he goes, do you really believe there's a God? Well, at that point, I had shared that with him numerous times, and I said, dude, it's right out of Romans 1. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. The answer, when someone says, do you really believe there's a God, the Apostle Paul goes, do you really believe there's not? He says, with all the things in nature, with all the the laws of physics that are in place in this universe, do you really believe it came up snake eyes a billion times in a row so that all this just accidentally came together? I said, bro, you've heard me share that before. I said, and at that point, I took a leap, and I gave him one of the worst illustrations in the history of illustrations. (laughs) Okay, the Matrix is not cool anymore. Some of you would say that the Matrix was never cool, all right? But I use this example. I go, well, listen, man, either you take the blue pill and you believe, or you take the red pill and you don't. He goes, what is that from? I said, the Matrix. And he goes, I never saw the Matrix. He said, I'll take whatever pill it is that God doesn't exist and you're an idiot. Dead silence. We are 15, I mean, we are we're literally like 90 seconds into the drive for that first 15 minutes, and we sit in silence, and I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, great job, Zach, kid condemned to hell. Well done today, right? <laughs> we drive up, we get to the fried pie shop, I go, you want anything? He goes, no, I don't want a pie. So I make the fat boy walk of shame on the way inside the Sinclair's. <laughs> buy the cherry fried pie. I'm eating it, trying to drown my sorrows in it. As I walk back, we sit in silence 15 more minutes. As soon as we pull up at the camp, man, he's out of the, he's out of the van just before anything can happen. Now listen, you never know what the Lord's doing beneath the surface. But that was a pretty bleak moment. That night, Ed Newton gets up, 
preaches on one of the minor prophets in Scripture. It wasn't even a deep salvation focus. Preaches through this beautiful passage, but at the end of it, we've had such a bad experience. All of a sudden, when he does the time of invitation at Falls Creek, they do an invitation where everybody comes forward, but there were 8,000 kids there that week. And so the, the flow to the front is just very intense. And I remember he stands up and starts to walk to the front. My immediate thought was he's going to try to de-evangelize one of the counselors. That was honestly what I thought in that moment. <laughs> we got a TV personality, a guy named Kirk Kaiser. Kirk Kaiser's there with us. He knew this kid's story. And Kirk Kaiser, I remember, he grabs my hand. He goes, is this what I think it is? And I go, I don't know, man. I don't know. I go, let's just pray. We had a group of 120 students there from our group. They stayed holding hands and praying for this kid. He's the last one to come back up. He's got tears streaming down his face. He wipes me. He goes, I finally gave in. I finally gave in. He said, the Lord's been on me for months. It didn't matter the family he grew up in. He grew up in a good one. But that didn't save him. It didn't matter if he attended Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, youth camp. That didn't save him. What mattered is that he knew he was a sinner in need of a Savior. I got a little taste of what the apostles went through with Saul who would become Paul. Because that evening, right after he gets saved, he said, I'd like to stand in front of the group and give my testimony. And my response was, I don't know, man. <laughs> You've been saved 10 minutes, you know what I mean? I don't know. He gets on the phone to tell the small group leader that he'd received Christ. Small group leader gets on the phone with me, just like Barnabas with the apostles. And he goes, he's different. Let him share. He's different. Keep him on a short leash, but let him share. He gets up, and basically his testimony was, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Preachers sometimes can feel the intensity of the moment, and I could feel it. We need to do another invitation. And we stop right there. I ask them to bow their heads. We had 20 of our group of 120 that prayed to receive Christ for the first time that night. Their testimonies were all the same. If God could save him... I bet he could save me too. Now listen, your eternity hinges on Jesus and Jesus alone. There's nothing you could ever do. And we live in a city where you are very, very capable people. You are strong, you're brilliant. But at the end of the day, it's a bill too high for you to afford to pay. You ever had a bill that you couldn't pay? That you knew it was going to take outside help to take care of it? This is a bill where if you are in a world where you have tens and twenties, it is billions and billions. There is no way that you could ever do enough to pay this bill. Nothing. If you're taking notes, write this down. Do you believe in Jesus? Eternity boils down to that simple question. He said again, do you believe in Jesus? Eternity boils down to that simple question. Some of you might say, well, I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. Is that enough? Let me read to you real quick. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Great passage of scripture here. It says this. And by the way, this is James, uh, this is Peter and, Je or Peter and John uh, in this passage. We told you what Paul and Silas have to say. Listen to what they say in affirmation. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven and earth by which men may be saved. The picture here is Jesus is not a way. Jesus is not one of the ways. He is the way 
way, definite article. He's the one way that we can be saved. All of eternity hinges on that beautiful, beautiful name. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which men may be saved. If you don't believe them, if you don't believe Paul and Silas, take it from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's not many paths to the one path. He says, I am the one stargate. I am the one path of God's mercy so that your sin is not counted against you. Do you believe in Jesus? Eternity boils down to that simple question. Now flip over. Final verses today. Acts chapter 16, verses 32 through 34. Here's what it says. It says, So then Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his household. Now watch the change that takes place here. It says, at that hour of the night, remember this is after midnight, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, underline washed their wounds, then immediately he and his family were baptized. It says the jailer then brought them into his house, underline brought them into his house, and set a meal before them, underline set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, not just him, but he and his whole family. Now stop right there for just a minute. This was not. He got saved and therefore by default and proxy, his family was saved. He gets saved and his family goes, whoa, you really had a change that took place in you. And it's contagious to the point that they go, man, I want this Jesus in the same way that you have this Jesus. There's so much change that happens in this man. This jailer who had been indifferent to these Christ followers before washes their wounds, puts a meal before them in the middle of the night, and he brings them into his own home. And the byproduct is he is filled with joy and his family is saved. If you're taking notes, our final point today, how does one become saved? Number one, you must realize that without help, you're in trouble. Number two, you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And number three, there should be noticeable changes in your life that take place afterwards. There should be noticeable changes in your life. Now, just for the record, those changes are not a requirement in order for you to be saved. Those changes are a result of your salvation and a reminder to you that you are being saved. If you're taking notes, you can write it down this way. You ready? Lifestyle changes are not a requirement, but they are a result of true belief. Let me say that again. Lifestyle changes are not a requirement, but they are a result of true belief. Sometimes when the verse is thrown out, you will know they are my disciples by their fruit. We look at that as an outward going verse for us to point the finger at one another who are not living for God. It is meant to be an introspective verse for you to look at yourself and realize if I truly am saved, I'm still going to sin, but I'm not going to sin without the Holy Spirit putting up a fight. Amen? That's the deal. We all struggle with sin, and every one of us will from now until the day we go to be with God for eternity. But the picture is, when you have Jesus, you have that beautiful Holy Spirit within you to guide you, to lead you, to counsel you, and the Spirit's not going to let you fall into sin without an absolute kick and scream and fight and match on the way to do it. That, that kick and scream and that conviction that we call it is a reminder to us that we are saved, that we are being saved. There should be noticeable changes that take place in your life. It begs this final question today, is your life bearing fruit? Is your life bearing fruit? There's some of you, when you hear a message like this, even though you've grown up in church, sorry, 
There's some of you that when you hear a message like this, it causes you to feel a little uneasy and you go, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but I'm not sure. The reminder is that the Spirit won't let you sin without a fight. That that fist of conviction forms in your gut and you realize God's not done with me. He's working on me. We call it sanctification. And because He's working on me, I know that I'm saved. I know that He is with me. I had a really cool privilege to get to share the gospel with my father-in-law. He grew up not really trusting preachers, and he had good reason to not trust preachers. I won't get into it. It's his story to tell, not mine. But he had good reason not to trust preachers. And then all of a sudden, his beloved daughter married one. I remember we got married so young. I was barely 23. Autumn was barely 22 when we got married. We were so young. And I remember he just kind of kept me at arm's length in the beginning. After five years, he watched me. I watched him. They've got about 75 acres in Nakona, Texas. And what he used to do is he used to love to drive me around the property line and kind of show me where things are. If any of you have families that, uh, that own farms, they like to show you the property line because they don't want neighbors after they pass away, like sneaking a boundary stone in a little bit, right? They want to know that it's theirs. One particular day, five years in, anytime you share gospel stories, there's always sound stuff that messes up. Anyway, we start to drive around. He pulls to the far end of the property, turns off the keys. And I remember in the dead silence there, he looks over and he begins to ask questions about salvation. Share the gospel with him. I was so scared. I shared the gospel for a living. And I was so scared that day. This was my father-in-law. And I remember I got to pray with my father-in-law to receive Christ right there on the back end of the property. We get back to the house and we started to see signs that he might be a different man. But again, because he's my father-in-law, there's a boundary there. So I remember a few months later, he calls and he says, hey, I need a favor. Can you get me a Bible? I said, yeah, of course. He goes, I'd really like to have a Bible. I really felt bad that I hadn't given him one before. (laughs) I bring him a Bible, and every time he keeps it in his shop, every time I go to visit him, that Bible is more and more worn on the edges few more months passed he goes hey can you get me a picture of Jesus I said not exactly (laughs) I said what do you mean he goes you know what I mean he goes in a cowboy shop he said I've got a wall and he said the wall has everything in my life that's important to me family heirlooms it had pieces from the property had things from his work he even had some of the skulls from the animals that had lived on the property too, the beloved animals. He said, I want to put Jesus in the middle of the wall. Now listen, I'm not telling you that the day you get a Bible or a picture of Jesus is the day that you become a better Christian, but listen to me. There should be a progression. The Spirit wants you to grow in Christ. And there should be fruit from your life because of that. It's, again, not a requirement for salvation. It's a result of time with Him. There's some of you today, and the last word for you is maybe it's been a while since the Spirit convicted you and you said, Jesus, take it. I can't do this sin anymore. Jesus, take it. I can't live this way that I was living anymore. Or, like in the case of my father-in-law, there's something you need to add to your life. Time in Scripture. Time in prayer remembering that Christ is the center of all things.
Is your life bearing fruit today? Thanks for listening. I'm telling you, Acts 16 is rich, isn't it? Lots of cool stuff. Eternity hinges right here in this passage. Don't tune out. The most important part of the service is this next few moments. Let's bow our heads for prayer.